Hello, I'm George Alagaya, and this is Migrants Mean Business. Migrants Mean Business is a new podcast series from the Migration Museum in association with Alliance Global Investors, featuring conversations with some of Britain's most successful business leaders, all of whom have immigrant backgrounds. Each episode explores their personal and professional stories, offering insights into how they built their businesses, the challenges they faced, and how being migrants has influenced their lives and careers. These conversations highlight how immigrants have helped to build modern Britain, a story which now, more than ever before, needs to be told. Like so many others, my family came to Britain with our talents and our capacity for hard work. From corner shop to conglomerate, immigrants have helped to make Britain what it is today. But talent and hard work is only part of the story. Britain has also given us the great gift of opportunity. My own success is an example of what is possible when Britain is true to its principles and the sense of fair play that beats strong in the hearts of so many. That's why this Migrants Mean Business series and the permanent National Migration Museum that we're creating is so important. It highlights how migration across the ages made us who we are. You can find out more about the museum at the end of this episode in the episode notes or by visiting migrationmuseum.org. To kick off this Migrants Mean Business series, we've got a cracking conversation with one of the most charismatic and recognisable business leaders of the past few decades. Sir Stelios Haji Ianu, or simply Stelios as most of us refer to him. Stelios was born in Athens on the 14th of February 1967. He moved to the UK to study at the London School of Economics and is best known for creating the low-cost airline EasyJet in 1995 when he was just 28 years old. But EasyJet is just one part of a business portfolio that now spans a dizzying number of sectors and companies. Joining Stelios in conversation is Daniel Franklin, executive and diplomatic editor of The Economist. Their fascinating conversation ranges from Athens to St. Bart's by way of London, Luton and Monaco, and was recorded at the headquarters of Stelios' philanthropic foundation in London in late March 2019. So, without further ado, let's dive in. Well, welcome to the Migrants Mean Business series and to the very first in the series. And I think we couldn't begin in a better place than here with Sestelios to talk about his uh, entrepreneurship, his, his story. Should we agree that you call me Stelios since we've Let's known each other for that. a while? Yeah. Let's agree on that. <laughs> Let's drop but, the sir. But, but you are formally wearing a tie yeah, this exactly. evening, which is uh, not, 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 not your usual attire. What, what is the tie? No, well, this is a, I have one hobby, uh, that's sailing. So this is the Royal Times Yacht Club. And I thought if I'm coming to an event, I better look uh, you know, a bit more serious <laughs> now. But so with your permission, can I take it off now? You may. So we're going to describe your story from, from uh, uh, rough and tumble of an entrepreneur to this establishment Royal Thames Yacht Club figure that we see before us here. But seriously, let's start with origins. You sometimes describe yourself as a professional foreigner. Um, what are the bits that make up this foreignness in you? 
My parents were both born in Cyprus, and you may have seen around the room some um, relevant material of our charitable work in Cyprus. Mm. So Cyprus was a British colony until 1960. So technically both my parents were born as British subjects, if you like, British citizens, when Cyprus was a colony. Then they left before independence. They traveled, they came to London, they settled in Greece, where I was born. So to some people I'm Greek, to some people I'm Cypriot, but in fact, you know, I'm, I'm neither exactly, because to the Greeks I'm a Cypriot and to the Cypriots I was born abroad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a Greek passport as such. I, I never got the Greek nationality. My nationalities are British and Cypriot. And obviously I came here to study uh, initially. I, I went to the London School of Economics and then the City University. That's what good Greek boys do, or Greek Cypriot <laughs> boys do. They come to London to study and be educated. And then I went back to work for my father because I should have explained Greece is a good base to run a shipping company. So it was, it was like the, the base of the family shipping firm. But then I was, you know, I was a typical second born. I was a bit of a rebel, so I wanted to do my own thing. So after convincing my father to finance a shipping company of my own, a startup, which I eventually floated and sold uh, on, the London, on the New York Stock Exchange, then, you know, I went to Luton. I looked around and I said, Luton Airport needs an airline. <laughs> well, let's, let, let's come on to that in a minute. I want to stick with origins for a bit. And, and, and so Greek not citizen, but born there. Born in Athens, yeah. And so uh, yeah. obviously a strong Greek identity, yeah. even though not citizenship. British citizenship, Cypriot citizenship, but you also now live in well, Monaco. I live in right? Monaco without speaking French, which is a miracle. How can you survive all these years without sort of integrating into the French culture? But, you know, it's English speaking, so I've survived that long, and I'm too old to learn another language now. And, um, you know, I consider myself a citizen of the world, professional foreigner, even my foundation, if you like, because we recognize the fact that I have these four bases, is diversified in causes. In other words, we support many different projects, but they have to be in these four countries. So as you were saying, you are not, and you're very open about acknowledging this, mm. it's not a rags to riches no. entrepreneurship story in your case. Uh, your father had a, had, a, had a big business, gave you your start, and do you think you could have become a successful entrepreneur in the absence of that, um, no, I, I don't, that, that, that help that you I, had I in the early days? I don't think anybody else would have financed an airline in the hands of a 28-year-old <laughs> <laughs> with an unpronounceable last name <laughs> in Luton Airport flying to Glasgow for 29 pounds. <laughs> So, but do you think that being, uh, to some extent anyway, an outsider um, was an important factor in even thinking of the idea? Well, uh, the funny thing is that at the time of starting to think about investing in the airline business, I was properly living in Greece and running a shipping company and sort of having all the trappings of being the son of a Greek ship owner, the boat, the yacht, the, the, the nice um, office and everything else. And then... I started, I, uh, one of my first uh, encounters with aviation was Richard Branson and, and Virgin, because at that stage there was one uh, airline, one aircraft flying between Athens and London that was franchised to a Greek company under the Virgin brand. So the Greek guys who were running it came to me as an investment. I said, I'll think about it, met Branson, probably that inspired me. But I decided against investing in that single airline, single aircraft airline. Um, I went to the States, I found, well, I 
when you're trying to start an airline, you go and see Boeing. It's a bit like the pilgrimage, you know, you go to Mecca. <laughs> so they said you should look at Southwest Airlines, which is the, the prototype, if you like, the original, the, the, the granddaddy of low-cost airlines. So it became a question of, you know, if you have the money and you're going to start somewhere in Europe, remember that was the time that Europe was opening up its skies. And it's fascinating that we're having this debate now with Brexit and everything else, and we should try to avoid talking about Brexit tonight. But, uh, you know, Europe, European integration, you know, is the result of Europe opening up its skies and saying anybody can fly from anywhere to anywhere. And that's what created a lot of the movements in Europe. So I could have started in Athens, and I had a brief conversation about that with my father, and said, no, you'll never succeed. <laughs> you know, the Greek no, establishment I mean, would never let you... People laugh, but that's yeah, a sad yeah, thing, yeah, actually, yeah, for yeah, Greece, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. I mean, it's part yeah. of the Greek problem that, that you know, Greece doesn't because actually... Because Olympic Air was owned by the Greek state yeah. at that stage, and they didn't believe in competition, whilst Britain had the history of both Freddie Laker, that, if you like, tried and failed, unfortunately, but that was a very vivid and, and, and alive story of a, an upstart that actually was crushed, you know. Um, and then uh, Branson who made it. So, you know, you, you say, you know, you want to be Branson, not Lakey. You want to be the one that survives, not the one that goes out of business. But, you know, I, we felt, both me and my father, that you have a better chance in London. And, you know, Luton is not the most glamorous airport in the world. <laughs> But it's very close to London. And if you're trying to fly to Glasgow for 29 pounds, it has the lowest landing fees. So, you know, in a way, it was a, and a, a was natural it, place to start. What was it about the British environment? Was it the legal environment? Or was it the, was it the, 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 the welcome that any entrepreneur would get in well, Britain, even if they had a name like yours and so on? Yeah. I don't speak French and I don't speak German. So, you know, maybe you could have started it in Paris <laughs> if you were French-speaking and you wanted to spend a lot of time there. There is an airport north of Paris called Beauvais. I mean, it's a, you know, the, the Luton of Paris. Who knows? Um, I, I don't even know where you would start in Germany. Berlin, I mean, Berlin was not as developed back then. So for me, London was naturally the biggest city in Europe. A lot of outgoing traffic. Remember, despite what we think, most airline traffic in Europe is still north to south from cold places to warm places. <laughs> So there's a lot of traffic and a lot of history of British holidaymakers and second homeowners and other form of migration. So some of the early customers of EasyJet was basically second homeowners. And, and if you the think, south of France and the south of Spain. If you think mm. back to those days, those early days, mm. you weren't the only one. And there were quite a few low-cost airlines, no-frills airlines, uh, starting up at the time. Many of them have fallen by the wayside. What was it that enabled you to grow and, and, and survive? Well, first of all, I guess the capital, you know, the lack of having a wealthy father to give you the money to buy Boeing aircraft at the right time, at the right price, you know, the right kit. You know, a lot of, a lot of startup airlines go leasing small aircraft or the wrong aircraft or whatever. So, and it's funny that we started with Boeing and then in 2002 we switched to Airbus. So, but, you know, having the capital to buy the right equipment, I guess, is essential. Um, and then, you know, dedication to promoting the company and trying to make it, you know. Uh, one, one of the reasons people know me in this country is that, you know, we started a TV series, a, a reality fly-on-the-world documentary about EasyJet in 98, when EasyJet was three years old and had six aircraft. So how do you get into everybody's home every Friday on ITV, you know, being watched by 11 million people? Well, you make a show out of your business. <laughs> 
it, it was what's and all. It was, a, you know, the delayed flights and I missed my passport and it's your fault. And, you know, so, you know, we made celebrities out of ordinary employees of the company. You Marketing know. and stunts that you also had well, to take, you, on, take on the establishment. Yeah, you, take, you take a risk, you sort of become, try to position yourself as the champion of the, of the, of the people. And you know, having a, a big enemy like British Airways also helps. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, but didn't the, the Greek uh, tourist um, uh, travel agencies took you on as well, actually took you to court, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, you, you've, you've been reading press clippings, I see. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, that was our entry into Athens because you know, I was determined to have a flight between London and Athens so I can go home and see my mum. <laughs> so, um, you know, one plane took off from Luton to Athens and back twice a day you know, in 97. And of course, in, in Greece, um, all of the, uh, we were a direct sell airline. Remember, that, that was the revolution, the fact that you had to book directly, either over the phone or- So you were cutting out the middleman. Yeah, cutting out the travel agent. Yeah. Uh, so originally the phone, that's why there was a phone on the side of the plane, and then the internet. So the Greek establishment of the travel agents were, very, were feeling very threatened. They said, you know, what are you doing here? You're gonna put us out of business. And you know, we, we played a bit with that, sort of, again, uh, you know, people's champion and um, went to the Greek courts, I remember, and, you know, to get the people on our side, I said, anybody who comes and cheers for us gets a free flight to London. <laughs> a thousand people turned up. <laughs> so, so let me put uh, uh, two words to you and see your reaction. Michael O'Leary. <laughs> I've stopped betting against him. <laughs> That's maybe not what you expected to hear from me, but he's been running a profitable airline now for you know, 25 years, whatever it is. So you know, he, he knows what he's doing. Um, it's a big company. I mean, you know, it's, it's bigger than EasyJet in terms of fleet, in terms of number of aircraft. I mean, there are different ways of counting the size of, of companies, but at the very simple sort of count of aircraft, it's a bigger company. Um, you know, I think even he admits now that his personality has been sort of being a benefit or a disbenefit to the company. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he's too antagonistic, the unions, the, the customers. But it's difficult to argue against the success of, of you know, what is essentially a small Irish startup 25 years ago. And, you know, I think if, if there are going to be five airlines in Europe, I think, you know, Ryanair is going to be one of them, EasyJet will be the other. The, the conglomerate around British Airways and Iberia, the conglomerate around Lufthansa and Air France. And that's ha, it. Has it actually helped to have another sort of challenger there in with you to... Uh, I mean, can you avoid it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, very few industries develop into monopolies in reality. And, and the other irony is British Airways didn't go out of business. I mean, they're doing just fine, you know. So, and, and you know, Iberia um, and Air Linguis all belong to the same holding company now, and you know, it's a big company in its own right. So I, I don't believe in monopoly. I mean, when you're like, unless you're lucky enough to be Microsoft or Google or something like that, that create, or Facebook even, you know, that you, you, you get a natural monopoly in your, in your industry and in your market. Most people have to deal with competition. So when you've started and you've got your, your successful creation, there's often a, a question how much, well, several questions. One is how much, to what extent do you run it yourself or do you let others run it? And to what extent do you stick with that or do you move on to the next thing? Do you become a serial entrepreneur? So 
you've made interesting choices in both of those areas. You clearly decided that you weren't the person to run the ever-growing EasyJet, but you should, as it were, step back and let others do it and focus on other things. Let's start with that. Um, contrary to popular belief, uh, because, you know, when you're the face of the company and when you're on TV and everything else, people think you make all the decisions. I mean, running an airline is a complicated, risky business. Remember, you're taking people's lives in, in your hands every day and everything else. So I was very conscious from day one, especially because I was 28 and a Greek, that I hired a good chief executive. So Ray Webster, you know, was hired within a couple of months, I think, of the first. Well, in the first few years, we were not even an airline. We were uh, the seller of the tickets on an airline run by someone else. But I made a conscious decision to hire a professional airline person, Ray Webster, from Air New Zealand, to actually come and run the airline you know, from day one. Now, with the flotation on, on the stock market, which happened in the year 2000. So, you know, again, it's not very often that you get a five-year-old company raising 250 million pounds from the stock market. Um, it, it became very clear to me, very obvious, that you know, I had to let other people on to the board and there has to be a separate independent chairman. I stayed on the board for a few more years, but eventually, I think what happened is something unusual. Um, whilst the company floated, I kept the brand, the ownership of the name in my own company. So if you look behind you there, the, the wall with the orange names, all of these brands and trademarks and, and names belong to Easy Group, one of which is EasyJet, and therefore I am licensing the name to the company. I'm a supplier to the company. I have an income stream from the company, so I shouldn't be sitting on the board of the supplier, the, the company you supply the brand to. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy with the, the current arrangement. We have a director of, of EasyJet here, Charles Gurasa. But, you know, it, it has settled, despite some press reports about a decade ago, into an arrangement where as a shareholder you get a dividend, as a brand owner you get a royalty, and that's a good investment. And that sort of, I, I think it's a it's a sustainable relationship with the company. And so these, yeah. this family, I mean, I counted yeah. more than 100 of them on your website of, of easy, the easy, easy brands. Let's easy brands, easy, easy brands. brands yeah. So how does all that work? Somebody comes to you with an idea and says, we'd like to, yeah. we'd like to be an easy part of an easy brand. Will you back us? Let, let, me, let me just explain a couple of things about the business model, because it is a, a way of running a business. Um, it is not a million miles away from where Virgin is and where the Virgin Group is. So you, you build a brand. Actually, we both discovered that airlines bring very, build very strong brands. I mean, if you are in the business of, I don't know, plumbing, it's a bit more difficult to create an exciting brand, isn't it? Biblical plumbers, whatever. You see their vans everywhere, but, you know, it's difficult to build a pan-European brand that, you know, hundreds of millions of people have heard and love. So an airline is a good way to start a brand. So the problem is most airlines own their brands. <laughs> if you're called British Airways, it's owned by the company, and that's it. You don't license the name. You don't get into other businesses. So me and Paul, you know, the Virgin Group and Branson and me you know, separated the two, and therefore we created this business model. Now, um, it's difficult. Every time you start a new company, it may succeed or it may fail. Depends how much capital you put into it, how much time, how much effort, how good the idea is. I mean, before you ask me, I will volunteer my biggest mistake, shall I? Sure. <laughs> Journalists always love that question. So, so in 97, 98, the internet was becoming prevalent. 
and the Wild West and the dot-com bubble and the valuations and everything else. So I had an idea that if you open internet cafes and you have a lot of computer stations in a shop opposite Victoria Station, not too far away from here, and you sell them the internet for a pound an hour, a lot of people would, would big, come big and use queues, it. I remember well, and there were queues around the block because it was the cheapest way to understand what the internet was. And it sort of worked for two, three years, and then I bought my first BlackBerry. And then I realized this will be technically obsolete as soon as everybody gets emails on their phone. Because a lot of the use was checking emails. So um, people on the move, you know, they wanted to... You remember Hotmail, you know, the first web-based email and that sort of idea. Now we all have it on our phones, so who would go into an, an internet cafe? So as soon as I saw the first BlackBerry, I said, we'll have to get out. You know, lost money, whatever, close it down and, and move on. Now, I mean, we still have the brand, Easy Internet Cafe, Easy Everything. It's sitting on the board. It's a trademark. It stops other people from using it. And, you know, while it lasted, a few million people interacted with the brand at the cost of a pound. Now, um, the, the way you monopolize a name is by having as many uses of it as possible. You can't sit there with EasyJet and say you cannot call yourself Easy Car. You've even gone after Netflix, haven't you? Well, <laughs> uh, Netflix, which is a very big, very arrogant American company, decided to launch a, a TV soap opera, which is funny because we've had our own soap operas, <laughs> uh, called Easy. And I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what possessed them and they called it Easy. But, you know, whilst they were in the States, we didn't mind that much. But when, but when we started promoting it in the UK, we actually took them to court. We sued and, you know. It remains to be seen what happens. The good news is they announced this is the third and final series. <laughs> so they're not going to make uh, friends out of it. You know, that's the problem with so American one of, series. One of, one of these yeah. stories really fascinated me yeah. because it ties yeah. in with the migrant yeah. theme that you obviously you employ um, lawyers to, as you've described, to stop people using the easy brand where you, where you want to assert your rights. But in one case recently, uh, there may be others, but you went after a e company that had set up Easy Food, and you ended up saying, well, come and come, let me join yeah, you, rather together, than putting yeah. them out of business. But they were a couple of yeah, people for, of Asian origin who were setting up a food delivery business. Or who a live food, in Birmingham. Who live in Birmingham. So tell us about that. Well, two, two things. First of all, many of my licensees, because remember, outside EasyJet, which is a big PLC, and Easy Hotel, which is also a big PLC, well, relatively big PLC, it's on the AIM stock market. Most of my other licenses are individuals. They're entrepreneurs. So we go into business together. And many of them are of ethnic origin. Because they are the most entrepreneurial and creative and willing to take a risk. And, you know, they put a couple of hundred grand in. I might chuck in another couple of hundred grand and we start a business together. So the, these um, two guys, um, Asian origin, live and sort of work in Birmingham. They... I mean, they're basically trying to take on Just Eat. And Just Eat is a very big company, by the way, so we're not talking small business here. I mean, they're trying. And I'm not Deliveroo saying that, as well. I mean, it's yeah, the Deliveroo same. is the other yeah. competitor yeah. and everything else. But um, the way it worked is they used to sit there with a slightly orangey, yellowy logo, which was not exactly the same. <laughs> and we sent the lawyers after them and, uh, you know. <laughs> And one day, you know, we had this meeting and we said, why don't we do it together? Why don't you join the brand and, you know, adopt the proper logo? You pay a royalty. You know, it doesn't have to be large. I put some money into the business, so I become a shareholder. So if you succeed, at least I make something out of it. 
and, and you know, nowadays I don't have any illusions that I can start a company on my own and run it 100%. I just don't have time. So partnering with people like that is actually a good way of growing the brand. But just to give people a yeah. sense of the scale, I mean, the, the EasyJet is still by far the biggest, yeah. isn't it? So in this, in this meadow of brands that you've created, there's one very tall tree standing out as which well. Creates which creates and sort of makes the brand famous. What, what are the yeah. other ones that, that do particularly well, well? As I mentioned, the second one, which is Easy Hotel. So 50 hotels by next year, also listed on the stock market. Rare is money. They, they build hotels. They convert hotels, they own property, but also the franchise. So that's, if you like, when you realize the power of the brand, when people pay you to use it. So if you have a building in Zurich and you want to open a hotel, you can call it XYZ, or you can call it Hilton or Holiday Inn, or you can call it Easy Hotel. So they franchise, but also de deploy capital to, to build their own hotels. But then you get into the other travel brands, which naturally work in a you know, smaller but profitable. So easy bus, easy car. You know, we realize that we don't have to own the, the rental vehicles and we don't have to own the buses. Because if you're National Express and you're trying to fill your, your vehicles, you very happily give us some of the seats to, to sell on and make an honest uh, margin out of it. And, and then, you know, even I have to look at the map some, uh, grab sometimes <laughs> to remind myself. Easy dog walker, yeah, is that a really big one? Uh, <laughs> I think that's another great entrepreneur story because Lucy, Lucy who started Easy Dog Walker was a cabin crew member on EasyJet. So I was flying EasyJet and you know, as I often do, I went to the galley and I had a coffee and I chatted to the, to the cabin crew members. And Lucy said, I want to start a business. I, I like walking dogs, I'm a dog lover. And, and there is a, a business, a franchise business. You know, I can do it myself, but then I recruit other people who walk dogs for, what is it, 10 pounds an hour or 15 pounds an hour, something like that. So, you know, it's not going to be a big business, but I think it's a great franchise proposition. So, you know, you find enough people that live in an area and they, they love dogs and they, you know, it's, it's like almost pocket money. You know, you, 15 pounds an hour is a decent income for someone who walks around with a few dogs. Now, why do I bother? First of all, I think it's a very heartwarming story, <laughs> you know, from cabin crew member to entrepreneur to sort of licensing the brand to other people. Um, I, we have a small dog, so we need someone to walk with Jackie. <laughs> and, and so on and so forth. And, and you remember, the more the merrier, the more names you can put out there and the more you can stop other people from occupying that space. So to complete the picture of your activities, so the, the easy, running the easy uh, group brands, that's perhaps a third of your time, shall we say? That's what I've sort of set, I've decided about a couple of years ago. So, and then uh, you have two other chunks, yeah, I believe. Yeah. One, the other, another third is investing in uh, basically passive funds. Passive investments, but yeah. Passive investment, but that could also tie into entrepreneurs, right? And, and you, 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 we'll talk about that in a minute. And then the third is the philanthropy yeah. side, so uh, the, the, where this building is the headquarters. You've taken the pledge, the giving pledge, which is to uh, bequeath half of your estate. Uh, estate to this foundation. Is that right? Correct. Um, Should so, we just explain a bit more about well, that? I'd like to know about the philanthropic activities yeah, yeah. and what, uh, how that fits into yeah. to your life and, and how it relates to your entrepreneurship. So a couple of years ago, as I was turning 50, I developed this theory that you should spend a third of your time on your main business, which is the Easy Family of Brands, a third of your time in other investments, safer, more passive, you know, ETFs, stocks and bonds, 
real estate, you know, unbranded, and so it's not correlated with, with the other, the first business. And um, the third is giving back to society. So I've been so lucky, I've been lucky twice, rich father and easy jet. I mean, how lucky can you get? When you get lucky a third time, I doubt it. So, you know, the idea is to channel some of these profits, these earnings back to, to society. And then I came across this idea of the giving pledge, which is, it's, Bill it's Gates, a club, basically. yeah, it's Bill a club, it's a club of philanthropists, if you want to call them that, wealthy people that decided that half of their estate should go to their own foundation in, in reality. They say to a good cause, you know, Bill Gates created the, his own foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, that would get half his estate. The confusing thing is Warren Buffett, who was the second signatory, gave his money to the Bill Gates Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> so there are people who believe that Bill Gates is sitting there collecting half our fortune, but it, it, it's not the case. In reality, it, it's, it's, a, it's a voluntary pledge, it's a, you know, you, you're encouraged. I think it's interesting why we make it public, and I've justified it in two, for two reasons. First of all, um, you encourage others to do it. You know, it's still a mystery why most of the Giving Pledge members are American or Anglo-Saxon, a few in Britain, some in Asia, and I'm the first one from the Mediterranean, for example. <laughs> you know, first Greek, first Cypriot, you know. Very strange, you know, in a way. There are no Italians, no, no Spanish, no French. So, you know, if you can spread the word and convince more people, if you like, to join the club and, you know, if you've been lucky and you made a little money, come on, give some of it but back. Some of this, and, I, yeah. and I, just to mention a couple of things that, that, that feed into our theme, if you like, that mm. some of this philanthropic activity goes to support migrants. Mm. For example, your, your food-giving activities in, 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 in Greece is... Greece and Cyprus, here's the my prop. So a lot of that presumably, <laughs> but a lot of that presumably goes to, to migrant families. Um, this is now our biggest project in, in the Stelios Foundation, in the sense that I, I wanted, I, I sometimes support other charities by just writing a check. You know, we support entrepreneurs with a disability, like the one you've been involved. But this is now the, mo the, the biggest, about a quarter of our giving. So I, did, I realized that in Greece and Cyprus, when they fell into the economic crisis, there were a lot of people who literally were hungry. They, you know, they didn't have enough money to buy food day to day. So we developed a system, which is a distribution system of snacks. And this is an example of the sort of snack we give in Cyprus. But we went round and bought snacks from different suppliers that have different shapes and sizes. But all of them fundamentally now are sort of snacks you would find in a supermarket or in a kiosk, and they cost a euro. We buy them at a huge discount, obviously, because we buy millions of them. And we give them for free. And you have to queue up, you have to turn up, you register without discrimination. So anybody, especially recent immigrants in Athens, our biggest distribution point is a place in central Athens that goes through 4,000 people a day, of which 75%, I would say, are recent immigrants. Yeah. So not only Greece is poor, but now you had the influx of this other sort of <coughs> set of people, I, I guess about half a million, round numbers, who, who've made... Athens, their, their home, because they can't, they blocked the, the passage to, to, the, to the rest of Europe, so they're stuck there, and they need, they need to eat, they're hungry. So they, they turn up and they get a couple of those, and I think that's a great way of helping a lot of people in a very efficient way, and without discrimination, because 
you know the best way to discriminate? You ask for a tax return. <laughs> yeah, so if you, you want to say, you know, prove to me you're poor, give me your tax return, immediately you cut out all the immigrants. Huh? You also so, mentioned the, your, your support of uh, disabled entrepreneurs. So other entrepreneurs who don't have the, uh, who start out with a disadvantage. That's been going for a number of years now. How's that done? Well, um, it, it was a discussion that started 12 years ago, I think, with Leonard Cheshire, which is another well-known UK charity that helps disabled people. And they came to me and asked for money, as all charities do. And I said, I can write a check, or we can think of a way of starting an institution, if you like, together. So I, I, I stayed to what I am passionate about, which is entrepreneurship. And I said, can we give money every year to disabled startup entrepreneurs, people who have a disability and start a company? And now, 11 years later, or is it 12, Tracy? 13. 13, oh, you see? <laughs> Time flies. We've helped a number of people, because now we're giving money to more than one winner every year. Our first one was a blind tour operator. How inspiring is that? So a blind guy who started a tour operation business. And he's been quite business, successful, yeah, I believe. Who takes he? blind people on holiday with, paired with sighted people. And he's still very successful, and he's become a minor celebrity in his own right and does very well. But of the other 10, 11, I think I, I told you earlier, we, uh, one passed away because you're dealing with people in, in poor health, so it does happen. One went to jail and one went bankrupt, and the others are doing okay. So I think, I think we, we, we're picking good, a, good, a good selection of people. <laughs> uh, I'm going to open it up to everybody to questions in a moment, but before I do that, I would like to ask you, it was an airline that you founded all those years ago. If you were starting out today, presumably it wouldn't be an airline, it would be something else. What would you do today? Facebook or Google, <laughs> if I may be so bold. <laughs> well, that's already been done. You're, yeah, exactly. you're a bit that's late for that. 15 years too late. Why did I think of it? <laughs> well, another way of asking it, I suppose you can invest in the funds that yeah. you're, you know, well, in this I, third of your activity. So what are you investing in? I discovered, decided, sort of convinced myself that there are two types of companies, fundamentally. Uh, companies that need to invest in assets to grow. So EasyJet needs another aeroplane to carry another X number of passengers. Easy Hotel needs another building. I mean, you may own it or not, but that's detailed. The, the reality is you need another building. So, um, I, and so there are companies that are capital intensive, and there are companies that, like software companies that are more virtual. So they don't need to spend as much in capital to generate more customers and more revenue. So I've allocated in my second third of investments money into Silicon Valley startups and fund, you know, fund managers who manage funds who invest in Silicon Valley startups. Because I'm not stupid enough to believe I'm going to come up with the next Facebook. But if you spread the money into three or four or five fund managers in Silicon Valley, you know, one of the subsidiaries might... <laughs> Might and be. you're pretty hands-on on all this. You go and meet the fund managers. You go and that's your style to be hands-on. I, 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 I had to go there and interview them and decide who I'm going to give my money. Absolutely. Good. Well, let's open it up. Yes. Who would like here? You, for commercial reasons, started something which has actually brought lots of people together. We are now living sadly in an age where not just in Europe but in the world as a whole, we're seeing polarization. We're seeing. Uh, narrow nationalism. How do you think that we can actually try to counter that terrible descent into introversion 
and actually get people thinking again in not just a European but a global way as well? I mean, it is a slightly political question, but I'll try and answer it in a non-political way because one thing I promised myself, I'll never become a politician. So, you know, take it from me, never ever is a politician. <laughs> so, um, you know, in a way, I'm a migrant, I'm a, an internationalist in an era of ultranationalism, isn't it? That's another way of putting it. So, I, I don't know how do you square that circle because, you know, Politicians like Donald Trump have figured out that if you talk about the wall with Mexico, people will vote for you. And, you know, if you run an airline that flies between Mexico and America, you're probably not going to be very popular. I, I don't know. I, you know, the, the, the good thing about EasyJet in the first 25 years, nearly 25 years now, is that it, it grew in a, in, at a time when moving around Europe was desirable. Now, is that ever going to go backwards? People will suddenly say, well, we need a visa to go to our second home in Spain. 25 years of habits do not change in one weekend because something happened. So I, I hope that it will be a non-event for the airline business. I mean, EasyJet, as you may have read, has developed a contingency plan with a, um, a separate license, an operating license in Austria. So doesn't it also help that you happen to have this yeah, Cypriot passport exactly. that you mentioned? So, so all of a sudden we're a bit European and a bit British and <laughs> it, it works for everybody. But fundamentally, it, it relies on the fact that people want this. They don't want to stop flying. They don't want to stop traveling. And, and hopefully a, a, a lot more industries like aviation will be left alone. I mean, that's my personal guess, which might be wishful thinking that all of a sudden they would say aviation is exempt. You know, it just carries on as it is. Because what do we do? We go back to, I mean, 30 years ago, only two airlines could fly between London and Nice, Air France and BA. And Air France stopped flying because they don't have a base in Nice. So for a while it was a monopoly. So does anybody want to go back to those days? I, I can't imagine. Are you open to uh Social franchising and licensing, so social cultural entrepreneurship, and also under the Easy Brand or not under the Easy under Brand? Under the Easy Brand. Oh, okay, yeah. And also young people. Yeah. So is there, you know? I what business do you want to start? Yeah. Tell me. <laughs> so if we, for instance, we put forward a proposition of, say, establishing a fund that would fund young people to set up easy businesses, is that something you'd be open to? Well, I mean, that's what we do for a living. I mean, next week we have a gathering of the Easy Family of Brands and we have 100 people there, most of whom are startups that want to pitch an idea or, you know, start the next Easy Dog Walker. I mean, is that, that sort of level. We don't, we don't it's like Dragon's Den, is it? Sort of, yeah. Do you have a particular idea or you want to...? I have millions of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm curious, as you think about new places where you can use the easy, because you obviously have been an original disruptor in many ways. Do you look at larger industries, like the one that comes to mind is healthcare, aging populations, the needs for more support. Do you think about industries where you can, again, disrupt, or you wait for people to come with you? Well, healthcare is a difficult yeah. one. I, I, I have briefly thought about it, but you know, at the risk of making a joke out of it, is a hospital, you know, what, mm -hmm. what would it look like? I mean, would it have orange, Linen, bedsheets, I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm realistic about how far you can take the easy brand. And the problem in healthcare is your, your main customers is either the government or, or you know, sort of um, 
insurance companies. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it's a tough one. You know, how do you make it easy? How do you reduce the cost? For whom? For the government? For the insurance company? For the people who pay out of their own pocket who might be wealthy enough and therefore they don't, you know. What are you going to say? Operation under an, a normal doctor, 10,000, easy doctor, 3,000? <laughs> no, actually, the, the one that came to mind was the dog walkers because, mm. you know, there is a need for temporary home care for lots of people. For, for, for aging people? For or aging uh, people yeah, yeah, okay. Care homes is not a million miles away from, let's say, easy hotel. I mean, I'm, I'm trivializing it, but if you think about it, you know, it might be slightly smaller rooms and, you know, slightly less uh, ratio of staff to, to customers and everything else. So, you know, you know easy care home might, might be a business. Add that, that. that to your list. Yeah, absolutely. I would have another question as probably everyone in this room and one of your clients. And I can rely to what you mentioned before, having a, a positive and, uh, and, and well-known brand. What is also interesting is sort of like the client experience, right? So taking a flight off from Gatwick, I'm always amazed, you know, the, how seamless the whole process is, you know, how fast it goes. We're delighted that's your experience, yeah. <laughs> and you know, how close are you, sort of like, as an old member or focusing on, on, on these processes? And also what, what I observe is sort of the process improvements you have over the years. Well, I mean, there are far more clever people hands-on who run the Gatwick operation and know how to process people through an airport. I mean, my, um, my supervision of the brand, if you like, is through a brand protection committee, if you like, that meets four times a year. Our next meeting is on Friday. And, you know, we have separate KPIs. I mean, one of them is the average delay, for example, how many delays you have and everything else. So you try and focus on the big picture rather than, you know, how do you check in and back at Gatwick. Um, so I mean, the other problem, of course, is this is an industry where you never know where the next problem is going to come from. How many people expected the drone problem at Gatwick? <laughs> I mean, for God's sake. <laughs> you know, if you had to list the risk of factors a year ago, would you put drones at Gatwick? <laughs> but the one that you might put for the, for the, for, for the airline industry is the environment. And, and it is possible that there is a growing backlash against the very idea of air travel, in fact, that, they, that as you say, easy travel is, is wonderful at one level, but potentially also it, it has... You mean the effect on climate change? It has, yeah, yeah. it has a huge impact, which perhaps attitudes may change can, towards can that. I, can I say that my personal experience, in other words, I might not be typical, and maybe I'm not in touch with reality, but that topic was at its peak probably in 2007, for some reason. So airlines were being attacked in 2007 as encouraging frivolous travel and that sort of thing. Then the crisis happened <laughs> and people sort of moved on. You know, cheap travel is good because we, we, we need it. I haven't felt that it's come back very highly at the moment. But that's public yeah. opinion. Yeah. There, there's a scientific fact. Yeah. So uh, are you, is it something you look at? Well, as a, is mean, it something that bothers you at all? You, are you only do you want, interested do you want in... my standard answer on, on, on the sort of the environmental impact of a company like EasyJet. I mean, um, because we put more people into the same aeroplane and we put more seats into the same aeroplane, more of which are actually filled rather than empty, per person carried is actually more environmentally friendly mm -hmm. than flying with a high-cost airline. So, you know, in, in 
25 years, the typical British Airways flight would have been flying 60% full, 65% full, and would have had, if I take the same aeroplane, maybe would have had 140 seats. An EasyJet A320 now has 186. Are we up there almost? Almost. <laughs> so 186 seats, of which 90% of them are, or 95% of them are occupied. So per person carried, and the engines are more efficient. But of course, you know, if you start blowing your trumpet about these things, then something like this Boeing 737 MAX happens, God forbid. Now, who would have guessed that we couldn't trust Boeing? So, you know, there are always risks in this, in this argument. So the latest plane has just been grounded. Yes. Sorry, lots of hands yeah. now. So the lady behind... Everybody there, wants yes. to know about the Boeing aircraft. <laughs> I'm not an expert on Boeing. Leave me alone. I just wanted to return to the issue of environmental and climate change in particular. And I am aware from your philanthropic giving that you have put money towards environmental issues. I just would like to hear a bit more from you on that, because clearly climate change is a huge issue that we will yeah. all have to deal with. And the airline industry has actually been quite progressive. I mean, inevitably, people want you to do more. But I'd like to hear a bit more about what your contribution is to that. Well, Maybe because of guilt, because I remember I started in shipping, which is also a culprit in, in pollution uh, of the oceans and everything else. I've always, uh, for the last 15, 20 years, I've been a supporter of the WWF. So I believe they do a good job. Another sort of well-established, well-known charity that helps the environment. And we do events every year to, to raise money for them, and I donate funds to them. I, I haven't come up with a hands-on environmental project, if you like. Remember, there are only 24 hours in a day, and you have to sleep some of them. And <laughs> so, uh, you know, our hands-on projects are in things like entrepreneurship or the food or uh, the reunification and peace on the island of Cyprus. So I haven't found a, a good hands-on charity project for the environment. If you have any ideas, let me know. I think statistically it's shown that migrants are more entrepreneurial than long-standing residents of a country. How do you think that the children of migrants can be encouraged to have the same degree of entrepreneurship that their first-generation migrants have? Well, in a way, I'm the child of a migrant because my father left Cyprus. Huh? Remember, he was born in that tiny village up on the Trudos Mountains in Cyprus, and he left and started a shipping company. You know, so he is a migrant himself. So I'm a second-generation migrant. I think there is something about the character of someone who is willing to take a risk, to, to leave, you know. There are people who are born, live, and die within a kilometer of where they were born. <laughs> and, you know, if the parents live there, they buy a house, you know, two or three blocks away, and uh, nothing wrong with that. And there are many people who are very happy doing that. But, you know, if you're going to get up and go to another country, that means you are more of a risk taker. So maybe, you know, it's natural selection. You, you leave because you're a risk taker, and... You do things because you take risks. Um, my question is going back to your business. Have you ever thought about doing more long haul? It's a tough one because... Um, Norwegian the, the, is doing yeah, that, right? Yeah, well, the, the, limit, the range of the 320 is about four or five hours. So the, the airline carries people to Cyprus. I came back, actually, Larnaca to London a few days ago. It's a long flight. So there are a few what you would call medium haul. Now, to go to America, etc., you need a different plane. And that complicates the matters, and you, have, you need a different fleet, and you know. I, it, it remains to be seen if long-haul, low-cost works. 
A couple of people have tried it, and they're not making enough money. Who knows? Air Asia X is the example in Asia. Norwegian, as you say, is in Europe. But a few of the smaller ones go out of business as well, long-haul, low-cost airlines. Freddie Lake was the original one. Thank you. I was just wondering if you've ever been made to feel like an outsider and how you feel about the, the way in which <laughs> you know, migrants are perceived today in the media and British society. Well, I, I don't want to appear as, as a victim because I, I've survived and I've done okay, thank you very much. But, you know, as I keep joking about it, I'm a foreigner everywhere. I mean, even in Athens, I'm a Cypriot. <laughs> Where do you feel is home? Or are all these places home? I, I have homes in all these places and I'm, I'm quite happy to live in them. I spend more time than anywhere else in Monaco, but that was a decision of my father 30 years ago when Greece was getting a bit unsafe. You remember we had a terrorist group that was sort of gunning down rich people and everything else. So, you know, my father, when he made enough money, he said, we need to move to a safer place. But, you know, I like, you know, warm places by the sea, safe places. You know, my hobby is sailing, so I, I go on the boat all the time. I've developed a, a second home in the winter in the island of St. Barthélemy in, in the Caribbean. So, you know, is Kensington my only home? No. I, I don't want to spend the rest of my life you know, in, in this town, in this climate. Um, <laughs> no offense, but you know, the weather is not very nice. <laughs> That's why people get out and go on holiday, you know, <laughs> or have second homes. Was it always the plan uh, in the early days of EasyJet for, for you to associate yourself with a brand so strongly, like Richard Branson was Virgin, or did that develop over time? And second question, do you think your Greek personality, the larger-than-life personality, played a role in the success of the of EasyJet, the brand? I, I used to think that, uh, you know, I'm sort of good with the media and charismatic and everything else. I now, I now believe that it's airlines that create the personalities. So, you know, Michael O'Leary became very famous. You love him or hate him, but he's very famous. So the airline industry creates... Mm -hmm larger-than-life personality. It's something to do with flying and, you know, going to exotic places and being excited. Um, you know, it, so I, I think it's the airline that creates the personality rather than the other way around. Now, the fact that I was a Greek, I mean, was it positive or was it just a factor that I had to live with? I mean, my accent is still, you know, partly Greek, but it was much thicker in 97. So I remember I used to voice my own radio commercials with this very thick Greek accent. <laughs> was that conducive to getting people to fly or not? Who knows? But I still did my own commercials. <laughs> I think if you're talking about the startup airline, the fact that the owner is willing to put his face to it means they're more likely to trust the safety element. Because if it's safe enough for me to travel, it should be okay. I'm not going to put you there up have been, has to be said, been some spectacular failures yeah. of high-profile uh, uh, airline oh, people. E I mean, one equally, but, you know, it's a question of do you trust this anonymous, faceless company that has one plane and goes from Newton yeah. to Glasgow? At least if the owner is on board, <laughs> you, you're, more, you're more likely to think it's going to be safe. But, of course, the owner can be a risk-taker and crazy. and <laughs> Who knows? Please. Are you confident uh, about the future in this country for business and uh, for particularly for 
migrants coming here and establishing businesses, which has been such a critical part of the success of the UK economy over the last you know, 30 years. If you're asking me, am I confident that EasyJet will continue to fly in and out of the UK? Probably yes, because it's established and people have been doing it for years. Now, will it be more difficult for the son of a Greek guy or an Italian guy to come and set up a business here in 10 years' time? I, I really don't know. I'm also a great believer that politicians fudge things. <laughs> no offense to politicians, but you know they, they will sort of they will try and keep the positive benefits of having you know, economic um, investors come in. I mean, most countries encourage economic. Is there a investment. role for entrepreneurs in trying to ensure that the next generation of entrepreneurs have the same opportunities, or did you just sit back and watch? Well, I don't want to get into politics. Right. Right? Most countries have a, a, an investment visa, isn't it? From America to Cyprus, you know, it's everywhere. So. There is a, th a system in most countries that says if you contribute economically, you, you can come in somehow. So I hope that sense will prevail and you know, the, the, the desirable elements of um, economic migrants will, will continue to flow. What I wanted to ask you as a final question, what lessons do you think there are for people who would want to start a business today? Um, what would be the one or two bits of advice you would give? And what would you say that um, a migrant, whether they've come with nothing or whether, as in your case, they come with, with uh, money to invest, how can they make the most of their host environment? Let's start with your advice for business. What, what, what lessons do you draw from your life in business? I, I think in one word, travel. Uh, you know, don't, don't try and set up business in your backyard just because you were born there and whatever. So, you know, the best opportunities might not be where you were born. So, you know, I went to America, I looked at different things, I set up a business in London. I even have a buy-to-let business in San Batelemi now in the Caribbean. <laughs> and out of nowhere, by spending time there, I have a real estate portfolio, buy-to-let, so renting out. So, you know, the best opportunities, you know, are likely to be further afield and you know, try different things. And the second thing is diversify. Yes, you have to focus at some stage, but equally, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't bet the farm. Try different things. And, and focus on income rather than capital gain. That's the other problem we had with the dot-com bubble. That a lot of people thought, you know, I, put, I start a business, I float it, I sell it, and that's it. I don't have to work. I, I prefer the income. I prefer the dividend, the royalty, the recurring income, however small. You, know, you build it up, it all adds up. And the last question was on a migrant. If you were a migrant coming to this country now, what advice would you give them in how to make the most of the, the opportunity and the, whether the political environment is benign or not? Uh, that's a tough one because I, I, I don't have a feeling now how welcoming or hostile this country is now for a recent arrival. And I guess it depends whether it's a recent arrival from the EU, from outside the EU, from the Commonwealth. You know, there are different permutations here, but um, I still think this country is more welcoming than others. Mm -hmm. I, I'd be more nervous about starting an airline in Paris or in Berlin <laughs> as a startup, if you like. So, you know, I, I think it's more welcoming. English helps. The, the fact that, you know, it, it's easier to integrate if you speak the language. 
Very good. Well, on that optimistic note, I think we should all thank Stelios for an absolutely fascinating conversation. And I think we've all uh, learned a lot and we've learned more about a brand that we felt very familiar with, but you've given it a texture that has uh, given us a, a richer sense of it. Thank you very much indeed. I'm George Alagaya, and you've been listening to Migrants Mean Business, a new podcast series from the Migration Museum in association with Allianz Global Investors. Next up, I'll be in the interviewer's chair myself, chatting to entrepreneur and philanthropist Sir Lloyd Dorfman. Subscribe to Migrants Mean Business wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out. You can find out more about future episodes and give us your comments and feedback by visiting migrationmuseum.org or getting in touch with us on social media. We're at Migration UK on Twitter and Migration Museum UK on Facebook and Instagram. Or you can come and visit us and check out our exhibitions and events at our current venue on Lambeth High Street in London. Migrants Mean Business was produced and edited by David Craigie, who also made the theme music. Thank you to Sir Stelios Haji Iyanu and Daniel Franklin, and to the Stelios Philanthropic Foundation for hosting. Thank you to Allianz Global Investors for sponsoring the series. And last, but certainly not least, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.